This is the Untamed Ethos Podcast. Join us as investment pros, executives, and other experts talk business, personal growth, investing, politics, and the trending topics well-rounded pros need to know about. Authentic, unfiltered, and fun. Joshua Wilson is the founder of United Ethos Wealth Partners, a registered investment advisor. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of United Ethos's investment advice on this podcast, and nothing you'll hear on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. All opinions expressed by Joshua and by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of United Ethos or its affiliates. Welcome back to Untamed Ethos. I'm host Joshua Wilson, and with me, as usual, Dr. Vix, Russell Rhodes. Today, we've got a lot of things to talk about. Uh, the NASDAQ oh. is breaking out. What does that mean? Uh, one day, VIX uh, getting up and running, and Dr. Vix starting to notice some peculiarities there. Um, talk, we were talking about uh, companies potentially hoarding cash and looking into that earlier, Russell. Maybe we'll get around to that. And then some fun stuff is kind of in the news. Uh, female crash test dummies, um, uh, oh China, uh, artificial intelligence. Yeah. In the classroom and in investment analysis and so forth. And also, it's the end of the semester. And, uh, you know, I know you and I both uh, are both professors. You, of course, at Indiana University, Kelly School of Business, and me, at least for the time being, at Baylor University, Hankamer School of Business and the Entrepreneurship Department. And, uh, you know, I've, I've been having more conversations with students about what's next and advice for the mm -hmm. career and, uh, so it'd be interesting to kind of think about how you and I are advising people during this very interesting time of AI in the, 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 the infancy of the age of AI and how those things are influencing careers and maybe mm -hmm. how influence had the, the advice that we're giving students and people that are early in their careers. And also just how we expect that to kind of change the expectations going into the future. So lots of stuff for us to jump into today, Russell. Oh yeah. What do you want to do first? Let's talk about the, uh, the NASDAQ breaking out. We're talking on Thursday, the 27th in the afternoon and the NASDAQ, it, it, it had a very, very strong day, probably the strongest day since, uh, late March, I think. And it's, uh, hasn't broken out yet. It's right against that resistance point. Um, so we'll see what Friday brings. Uh, if there's any follow through on that, but I, I spent a, too much time probably focusing on the NASDAQ 100 versus the S&P 500, but I think it's a better indicator of um, where we are in the economic cycle and where the stock market thinks we're going in the economic cycle, because it's, it's technology stocks and technology stocks are uh, very cyclical and they, you know, they had a terrible 2022 uh, underperformed the S&P 500 by, I think, double digits, if I remember right. Uh, but out of the box for 2023, uh, NASDAQ has been leading the other indexes higher. And, you know, even if you have no interest whatsoever in technology stocks, um, but, you know, you're looking at increasing your equity exposure or uh, deciding whether or not you should maintain the current equity exposure, the the leadership from the NASDAQ is one of those things that, uh, keeps me in the bull camp. And uh, it's been a little touch and go lately. Some of my students have, have heard me talk about this before and, or they just don't know what else to ask me when they come in the classroom. But uh, they're, they're, I, I get asked if I'm still long the NASDAQ uh, pretty much every week. 
And, um, you know, it's like, yeah, I still am. It, it seems to be flattening out a bit, but it hasn't gone down yet. So I'm, I'm going to stick with it. I'm pretty glad I stuck with it today because we got uh, 350 points out of the NASDAQ today. Um, you know, and it was up two and three quarters percent. The S and P is up a little less than two percent. The Russell two thousand is up one and a quarter percent. That's the kind of leadership out of Nasdaq that that will keep me bullish on stocks across the board, not just uh, technology stocks. Yeah, I mean, when we look at the the longer term chart, though, Russell, it, it it still concerns me because we've not really seen new highs. We've seen, you know, in a typical correction, you'll see a 10% correction, and then you'll go on to new highs. We've seen multiple 10% corrections, but we've failed to follow through to, to near highs. It, does that not suggest to you that we still may be the early stages of a bear market, perhaps? Oh, no. No, I don't think we're in a bear. I think, I think the worst is behind us as far as stocks go. Yeah. Really do. Um, and, you know, the stock market um, discounts the future quite well. And I think the stock market is looking, you know, six to nine months out into the future, which is by just about any measure, uh, a time where they're not going to be raising interest rates anymore. Um, you know, that, that has, if, if that changes, my attitude about a lot of things would change. Uh, but, you know, the, um, the last I checked, uh, the next Fed meeting, we're looking at a quarter point and then the uh, futures markets are basically discounting uh, no movement for most of the year and maybe even a 25 basis point cut in December. I don't necessarily, I, I tend to just go with the numbers and not have an opinion, but I have a hard time thinking, a hard time believing that we're going to get a rate cut in 2023. So that that's a place where I disagree uh, somewhat with the, uh, the futures markets. Um, I know I'm not the only one that disagrees. There was somebody a couple of months ago that put a really large trade on that only pays off if the Fed funds rate gets to six percent by the end of the year. I don't, wow. I don't see that happening either. I know, but it was like it, it was, and I'm, I'm probably completely screwing up the numbers now. Uh, the payoff would have been in the hundreds of millions, and the cost of the trade was like only eighteen million. So the risk reward reflects um, a very high likelihood that it ain't gonna work out. But you know. You do one of those trades every year and eventually you hit on one and then you retire as long as you don't lose, you know, all of your money trying to do that. <laughs> well, how, how important is it for us then? I mean, obviously we're, we're not quite breaking out here, but uh, mm -hmm. we've shown some strength here today, this being Thursday, the, the, the 27th after, you know, really a couple of weeks of really being kind of flat in the NASDAQ and trading in a range. How important is, is it for us to hit that? next level, which I guess is around 3.30 from a from a closing standpoint. I know it popped up um, in late August over that, but really from a closing standpoint, we haven't been up to that 3.30 level and since uh, since looks like August, week of August 8th. Uh, you're looking at the queues and I'm looking oh, at the yeah, index. Yeah, that's what, that's what I was uh, yeah no, I mean, you know, 3.35 is probably the next tough spot. You know, that's, uh, that's, that, that's where we got back in August. And um, I've got to make my chart bigger. Nothing better than people just describing charts to you. Um, yeah, you know, the 410 is kind of the, the high over the last couple of years for the queues. So, but yeah, that coincides, those dates coincide with what I'm looking at in the NASDAQ. 
Um, I'd love to see the NASDAQ at 16,000, 16,500 by the end of the year. I think that's pretty darn aggressive. Um, but really, I do, again, I do think that the worst is behind us as far as all of this goes. That 2022 was, was a very bad year and we're not due for another very bad year uh, until 2029, 20, 2030 or so, hopefully. Ha. Calling it? I don't know about calling it. That's, <laughs> yeah, that one's too far out. But yeah, the, the really bad years come every five to 10 years or so. So when I say 2029, 20, 2030, I'm talking about, you know, six, seven years from now. I'm just playing playing the history. Nothing really I mean, playing the history. Yeah, Russell, you, there, there's still so much horrible things we just that just keep coming out. And I realize that, you know, sentiment is a peculiar thing. Yeah. And you know, bad news can come around a long time before, but you're you're pretty much of the of the persuasion that the Fed is what's gonna drive this as long as we're not yeah. continuing to drive up interest rates and that being at the end of that cycle is it all comes down to that. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it really it, being closer to the end of the cycle than the beginning of the cycle. And you know, you mentioned um, at the beginning of the down part and you mentioned both of us teach. Well, you know, what I've been teaching the last couple of weeks has been, um, you know, what industries do you want to own during different parts of the economic cycle? And technology is what you want to own when we're, you know, when we just bottomed out. Uh, it's it's usually the first one to outperform, and specifically uh, semiconductors. I, I used to trade the cycle by buying the SMH ETF, but now I just use the Nasdaq um, futures instead. Uh, but semiconductors uh, is another industry that's gonna that, that usually leads us out of the darkness, and it's usually leading us out of it. Uh, again, when the news really isn't all that great, but yeah. there, there's a light farther off. Um, so that's I I, under, I I'm well aware that that the world is anything but perfect right now. But at the same time, uh, the stock market doesn't seem very faced by any bad news that comes out. Well, you know? so I mean, like, I mean, OPEC, OPEC has got you know they they're they're going to cut back. You know, oil jumped about ten bucks on that and plateaued at a new level. Stock market blew it off. Yeah, he's also got the the sentiment sensitivity of of these stocks and technology is often pretty sensitive to sentiment. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, during the times when the volatility is higher and risk expectations are higher, typically um, you expect different performance from more sentiment sensitive stocks versus mm -hmm. less sensitive uh, sentiment sensitive. That's hard to say back to back multiple times in the same sense. You're going to go um, sell some seashells in a minute. Exactly. Sell some seashells besides the sentiment sensitivity. Um, so, so yeah, the, the, is that a big factor in this? I mean, obviously the, the VIX has been unusual and I think we're still trying to figure out the one day VIX options. Uh, you know, you and I've talked about before, I, I used to trade several of the volatility based ETFs and, mm -hmm. Last year, I it started figuring it started seeming a lot harder at some some point. I didn't quite understand the movement as I was mm -hmm. seeing before. I used to trade U, UVXY and a few others, and some of the things I were do, I was doing stopped kind of working and caused me to kind of pull away and say, "Okay, do I really understand this mm -hmm. trade anymore?" And now I don't know that I I, mean, I still track UVXY because uh, it was one that I used to trade more often, but it doesn't 
feel right to me at this well, point. The, I, I think the, the volatility of spot VIX and the VIX futures, it's just um, dissipated a bit relative to what uh, we were used to. But also, you know, and UVXY is what? Is it one, one and a half times long? One and a half. Or, yeah. Okay. So it's a leveraged long one. Um, the, the other thing is because we, we're still in a, a riskier market environment, um, you know, it, and, and, you know, VIX can go up 50% in a single day. And a big portion of what, what dictates where the futures are relative to the spot index is that possibility being out there that you might get a quick run to the upside. So when you're not getting a quick run to the upside or they're extremely short lived, uh, the uh, the futures are just grinding lower. And that structural part of the, the way that those funds are, the ETNs and ETFs are, are created, uh, that structural issue where you grind lower if VIX doesn't move at all every day, uh, that's accentuated in the current market environment with the the curve continuing to be pretty steep. You know, I'm looking at um, uh, spot fix went out just under 17 today and the front month future um, uh, closed at is, are, is April still the front month? What? No. Oh, I'm looking at it. I'm looking at the curve from a different day. Goodness gracious. Um, oh, that's even more dramatic. So yeah, we went out at 17, the May future, which has about 20 days to go. Uh, it's at 1930. It's at a two dollar and thirty cent premium. the The next one is at a um, four dollar and seventy five cent premium. So you've got if 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 you don't get a move out of VIX, and even if you get VIX to like let let's say that you decided to buy UVXY and hold it through June expiration just for the heck of it, um, VIX could go from seventeen to nineteen, and you'd still lose because of the uh, because of that uh, consistent move lower. Uh, on the curve and the curve is pretty steep and then it flattens out when we start to look at the rest of this year uh which is another thing that makes me makes me think that that we're closer to being an all clear for equities uh, one other thing with respect to vix i i continue to see headlines where people are saying that the low vix is a precursor to some sort of bearish market activity i i, I have no clue where that's coming from other than the maybe hope much like uh, people about 18 months ago when we were starting to see inflation telling us that Bitcoin was going to be a great inflation hedge. Just because people say it and it gets into the press does not make it so. And it's definitely not so in this case. Unless you can make everyone say it. Yeah. everybody. Well, <laughs> if everybody starts saying it, that's great. But um, there's still really smart people that do nothing but focus on this market, focus in on this market. And I think they kind of like those headlines. Because that just uh, provides liquidity on the other side of what they're trying to do, right? I like those headlines. I'm I'm a big proponent big proponent of SVIX, which is the short one. Um, I, I've I've been holding onto that one for I think since it got launched. I've always had a long position. I've just scaled up and down with it, and the thing went from fifteen down to eight or so, and I loaded up on it. Sell calls against it. I wish there were weekly calls on it. Um, but, uh, you know, the, over the long term, short volatility uh, works out and we are really in a great market for, for volatility sellers. So that's a, so you use the, the SVIX as a, as a hold and then you're mm -hmm. basically selling options around the bounce. Yep. I, uh, I sell call options against, uh, you know, against it when it has a really good day. 
Uh, the issue, really, the issue with that one is I, I wish I had some pull at SIBO still um, because I would love to sell weekly options against it. They just don't have weekly options. Uh, what is the new ETF that just came out um, that was... Um... I, I own it, so I got to look at it. Over. It's ZIVD, I think. Um, it's the same guys. Yeah, I own I, I own a whopping. I bought 100 shares because I like the guys that ish, but I also yeah. like the idea behind it. Um, that gives you short exposure to the farther dated futures. So you don't benefit as much from that grind lower. Um, but I do believe that that the longer part of the curve is going to start to come down if as long as VIX stays at relatively low levels. So it, it makes sense there. Uh, but that's a good, uh, you know, ZIVB uh, is a good, uh, much, much more boring way to take advantage of being short volatility. And one of the nice things is, is with SVEX, uh, if, um, if we get a volatility event tomorrow, which is like, um, you know, things escalate in Ukraine or, or whatever, just some outlier event that knocks the S&P down three or four percent. Uh, SVIX is going to go down 20 or 30%. Uh, the ZIVB, the, the one that uses longer dated futures, it'll come under pressure, but it won't be nearly as bad. So it's a, it, it's, it's more of a chicken way to be uh, short volatility because it's a less volatile way to be short volatility. It, and obviously this, the new one day VIX, is that factoring, is that changing any of the dynamics of how these products are traded. I mean, obviously I, I, my, my, my thought would be, is it pulling volume from one product is, uh, or is it just new volume? I mean, can, can you actually just take all this new volume or expect new volume without it coming from somewhere else and reducing volume or reducing demand somewhere else? Is it affecting other products? Well, they haven't introduced any tradable products on the one day VIX. And I, I honestly don't think that that's in the near future. Um, one day VIX is a really good indicator. Uh, they've, they've shared that they initially only shared three weeks worth of data before they launched it. Uh, but now they've shared about a year's worth of, uh, data and you can see, it's really interesting. You can see that the one day implied volatility, the day before a fed meeting is really high. And then it's really low, you know, after that comes out. So it's a real ziggy zaggy looking chart. Um, my the the unfortunate issue with respect to the one day VIX, I think it's a great day over day indicator, close to close indicator. Um, the 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 way that the 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 time weighting works with it, um, uh, we're we're talking after the close today, but let's pretend like it's midday Thursday. If it's midday Thursday, the Thursday options and the Friday options are the options that are being used to come up with that one day consistent measure of implied volatility. Well, as we start to to, to move toward the close, um, remember that the options that feed into a VIX calculation are those that have a bid and an offer. So you end up with more no bid options uh, for um, for um, you know the calculation going for for the day that's expiring, and then you also are in increasing the weighting of options that expire the next day that have overnight risk. So then when you're totally focused on the next day's options and pretty much today's options have dropped out of the calculation, um, you're seeing pretty much pretty close to the highest levels of the day. And each day this week, we've we've only had um, we've only had the index for uh, 
four days now, but each day this week, it has opened low and then grinded higher throughout the day, which has nothing to do with what's going on with volatility or anything like that. It just has to do with, um, you know, the way that it structurally is set up. So I, I, I just, I, I always was, you know, my job was to promote VIX for several years when I was at SIBO. Uh, in the education division. And I would say, you know, even if you never trade VIX, if you, tr if, if you do anything that gives you exposure to the S&P 500, you should be, you should have VIX on your screen right next to it because there will be days where the s and and, and this happened the night Trump got elected beautifully. Um, when Trump got elected, the S&P 500, the futures were limit down at a point and the front month VIX future was up tremendously. And before the S&P 500 started to go up or come back up, VIX started ticking down. It was like a leading indicator. And if the S&P 500 is making new highs of the, during intraday and VIX is not making new lows intraday, sometimes that might indicate that we're at an inflection point. The trend's getting ready to change. Um, I was kind of hopeful that, that I would be able to apply a one-day VIX to that for very short-term trading. But structurally, the way that it just grinds higher throughout the day, uh, makes it not as good of a short-term indicator as I was hoping. Hmm. I mean, I, I'm looking at the the chart right now, and every bar, you know, on the candlesticks, it's big green bars each day. And when you go through for uh, this week, and then if you look at the three weeks of data they gave us before they launched, every single day, the one-day VIX close was higher than the one-day VIX open. So it just it's it's a structural issue with the index. I think it's a great day over day index. Uh, I wouldn't give it I wouldn't give it too much attention or have it or be making decisions off of it uh, during the trading day, which again is unfortunate because it's a really short term measure of implied volatility, and you know you would you would hope that that time frame would match up well um, with day for day traders, but. The, the better alternative is probably the nine-day VIX, which is uh, uses a couple of Fridays, but has enough of a short-term component in it, but also has, um, you know, isn't, doesn't have that structural issue that, we're, that I've just been talking about for the last few minutes that exists with the one-day VIX. Yeah, I understood. You know, to uh, to pivot off of off of the VIX, I know you and I will keep, keep we'll spend an hour on on the VIX. So we'll uh, let's, let's we'll pull away from that for a second, talk about something a little more fun. I don't know if you saw this, uh, Pete Buttigieg. Did I say that right? Like Mayor Pete, Mayor Pete, Button gig, Button gig, Buttigieg. I thought it was Buttigieg. Guggen, Guggen. You know, I was at a Hooters once. Yeah, once <laughs> in Topeka, Kansas. Well, oh, this is gonna be funny. I was at a Hooters in Topeka, Kansas once. Uh, I was interviewing for a job and um, at the at the security benefit headquarters and the Hooters was like one of the few restaurants there. So I'm eating at the Hooters because it's in the same parking lot as the Fairfield Inn or whatever. Uh, and it was trivia night. And they had one of the girls read the questions. And the first questions was, the first question question was in what, the, the, the topic was museums. In what city is the Lovra? That's the Louvre. <laughs> the Louvre. Yeah. And then the second question was, in what city is the Guggenheim? Wonderful. Beautiful. And then they replaced her with someone else. But when I when we were doing that, that that little story popped in my mind. And she was I'm just sure she's a she very sweet girl. Pay. She was just there to pay for college. That's right. She was just 
I'm sure she was a very sweet girl, but I mean, and that when she did gugging him, I mean, there was like audible laughter and I just felt really sorry for the girl. <laughs> so butt neg, I guess, but, but to gig. Booty J, booty J. Yeah. Uh, so booty J. He, um, he, you know, I, I had a quick drive home from um, Indiana today. So, and the highways were fine. So thank you, Mayor Pete. Mayor Pete, our, our, our transportation administrator in the Biden administration, he wants $20 million for female crash test dummies. $20 million for female crash test dummies. My question is, how do we know that the existing dummies don't identify as female I'm to begin sure, with? I'm sure nobody's asked them. But it seems to me that all you have to do is keep using the crash test dummies that we are using and then just write he or she on them. I can't, you? you know, they're, I, to take the other side of it, and I haven't read anything about it at all, but it is very possible that, you know, um, airbag, you know, if, if we're doing that, well, first off, if we're doing that, are we admitting that women or men are different? Oh, look at you. I got you, didn't I? I know. But no, really. I mean, but we are different. It's like uh, I, I saw a video recently talking about how our some of our bone structure is different for males and females. Oh, absolutely. So you're, it's, you're... Yeah. So it's very possible that, you know, um, we, we need a blue and a pink airbag and you hit the button saying if you're male or female and maybe it's safer that way. You know, it's very I mean, possible I... that airbags have been developed to only... Uh, you know, only deal with what looks like a male structure. So well, I'll, I'll there may be some, there may be some logic around it, but good God, man, I could do great things with twenty million dollars, like yeah. retire. The and the that world, would be as useful be honest, the, to the, the transportation. World built, <laughs> the world is built for people between the heights of in the United States anyway. Is generally built for people that are five eight to five ten. Why? Yeah, because that's kind of. That's the average, you know, that's pretty much average. You know, the average female is, uh, is five, four United States average males, a little under five ten, And so you're going to see that things tend to fit people that are five, six to five ten, the best. And if you, when you go start going over five ten, things start not fitting. When you start going under five, four, things start not fitting at a, at a fast rate because we've, we've, we've managed to the middle. Right. Who is actually mm -hmm. using these things? And I get it. The um, if if the average female, as we know, is smaller, uh, smaller frame than the average smaller weight, all these things in the average man. Sure. I get it. If the average crash test dummy is uh, is five, eight and uh, you know, 200 pounds or 170 pounds, whatever. Um, I get it. But like you said, at the same time, that's saying that there must be something different between men and women if we uh -huh. need dummies that are specifically female it's not about how you're what, what how you feel today or how you feel in general it's there's no, actually it's... some structural you know structural differences um you know it, in a lot of ways um the thickness mm -hmm. of certain bones the spread of certain bones um you know is going to be very very different the strength in the shoulders versus the strength in the legs um oh, yeah. all kind of things that are that would be present in a dummy, but uh, yeah, this this, <laughs> this this one got me, man. Yeah, you, you ever seen what? Uh, I m my youngest daughter um, likes to put her feet up on the dashboard when you're driving. Oh, which, I've seen the. Uh, uh, but have you have you? I showed her a uh, 
I showed her an X-ray of um, basically somebody's legs being completely disconnected from their hips and their shin bones being shoved up into the part. What actually happens if if that happens? Yeah, because it's like just honey, I, I I I you're 16. I got six years, and then you're out of college. You know, I I don't want to have to take care of you the rest of your life. So put your feet down. But I yeah, think the pic- I think the picture definitely scared her out of it. For sure. Good. Uh, more from the Biden administration, uh, new rule for homeowners, if you've seen this. And, I, and I'm not sure if this, I, I think, I would assume this applies to, I didn't look at the details, but I said this applies to new mortgages. But basically, if you've got a credit over 680, which means, you know, good credit, you're going to pay more um, depending on the size of your loan. The bigger your loan, the more you pay, but you're going to pay more for your mortgage, uh, basically as a penalty for having great credit. Yeah. Also, if you're putting, I believe it said 15% and 20%, the more you put down, basically 10, 20, 15, 20, the more you put down, the higher the fees are going to be because we're basically just doing everything that basic economic. <laughs> <laughs> basic empirical economics says to do, we're going to do the opposite. Um, you know, for me, the, I always thought of the down payment as being a way to encourage skin in the game, right? And make sure yeah. that you're going for homes that you could actually afford because if it goes down, you have a risk of losing equity. Yeah. You know, you're not just at the at the chance of, buying a home and then leaving that loss completely with the bank on paper, you're, you're participating in that loss. So all I see is an incentive to get into higher into, into homes, maybe that you can't afford. And it's all, and we're also subsidizing the higher risk borrowers. Cause that's the goal is to get higher it, risk bar. Have we not done this before? The, the, the goal <laughs> of getting higher risk borrowers and it's a new way to do what we failed at before. Mm-hmm. But this time we want to directly penalize the folks that uh, that with good credit, rather than waiting and letting the market crash beat them. We're gonna we're gonna hit them up front and in the and and on the way out. Oh, and the 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 part of that that discourages putting a lot of money down. Um, that just that's just increase that's just increasing the amount of leverage in the overall system. Yeah, absolutely. And you know you yeah. I, I know people who walked away from their houses because they were underwater in 2008. And it, it was, and it was a good decision on their part. Yeah. You know, I know somebody that owns a house now that was, had bought a condo at the wrong time in Chicago and just walked away from it. Um, you know, that, you know, there, there's moral issues there, but legally they were, they were okay with doing that. Um, this proposal m- might exacerbate some situations if we end up in a weak housing market again, that just repeat 2008. And a lot of things came together to cause 2008, but one of them was, um, you know, encouraging, you know, banks to make, uh, you know, low quality loans, or I I forgot what the term was for them, Um, non-traditional loans. Uh, So, you know, it was, it was, it was almost penalizing banks that they did not, uh, you know, loan to uh higher risk individuals when they were trying to buy houses because it yeah it, i mean it, this is there was a feeling a, it was discriminatory you know which well, the there probably is, is some of that but then there's business sense as well 
Well, I mean, you think about this with, with education loans as well. You know, there was a time where you actually had to have a case for taking a loan. It's amazing to me that you can take a, have a kid that doesn't know anything about loans and just says, I want a loan to go to college. And it's basically, okay, well, how much, how much do you need? Well, we'll, we'll determine how much you need based on how much the school charges not based on your ability to pay it back or the choices that you're making. If, mm -hmm. if we weren't forcing this and the whole, the whole, whole reason of forcing this, you know, we, we like to blame a lot of folks for, it, but there's a government that came in and said, you have to, to make it equal, um, for access to loans. And so it's, well, it's the incentive is to throw out all standards and say, anyone can get it. Cause we don't want to tell anybody no, because that might be discriminating mm -hmm. on someone. Whereas if it was me and I had to give the loan, I was the bank and I didn't have the government forcing me and the government saying, don't worry about it. They can't get out of these loans no matter what. Cause you can't even, you can't, you, even dying, you can't, you can't get out of these loans, right? I mean, it's one, of the few, <laughs> yeah. one of the few things that you can't get out of is an education loan. You can't, uh, you can't uh -huh. um, bankrupt your way out of it or anything. And so it's saying, you know, I can come to you and say, I want to go to college. Great. 50 grand a year. Fair enough. You can take out 200,000. I don't have to tell you what I'm, what I'm getting going for. Doesn't matter what my GPA was. Doesn't matter how I've performed in other things. It doesn't matter that I'm, you know, um, specializing in, you know, I don't I have no idea, you know, Oh, you, uh, you, you were great at underwater or, basket weaving, the underwater basket weaving, but there's, there's, a, there's, there's a lot of stuff that, 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 uh, that's becoming mainstream. That's just as wild mm -hmm. and has no, uh, it does not teach you skills that employers demand. It's one of my big pet peeves is we, mm -hmm. we, we've told, you know, I'm a millennial, barely. So I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an elder millennial, one of the, one of the oldest millennials. And all, all my generation heard was go to college, 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 go to college. I'm mm -hmm. saying stop telling kids go to college, tell kids get skills that employers are willing to pay for what, find mm -hmm. out what those are and find out where you can go to get them, whether it is college or somewhere else, get those skills. Um, and then if you want to be an entrepreneur, then probably you need to establish some cash flow from a side hustle or from buying a business or look to invest and get yourself cash flow to get yourself some, uh, some free space. Um, cause I, ultimately what drives me nuts is you see this, um, push to just get people in to education with no, no consideration of, I'm majoring in, and, and, and there's lots of great things. There's lots of careers that pay, that don't pay great, but they're very necessary and are valuable to society and nothing against those types of careers. But if you're going into that type of career, I think you should be careful about whether you want to spend to go $250,000 into debt to do that. So it's yeah. perfectly reasonable to say, I think you should get a loan to become a social worker. However, I don't think we should be um, that uh, we should be giving three hundred thousand dollars in loans to someone who wants to be a social worker. Um, how are they ever going to get out of that? Where, but we don't consider well, we don't consider you, how, you, how well they're going to be able to pay it back. Yeah, I, there there is a way that that it just goes away sometimes. Where you, if you're not making enough money, you make really low payments, and then eventually it just, you know, it's just gone. 
I, they just they it's they not, eat it's it. It's not gone from. It's, it's not gone. It's just gone for you. So yeah, it's so gone for. I mean, it's gone, gone. It's gone for you know. Nobody, nobody gets to keep it. I know. I I know a kid that that got a supplemental student loan to buy a Rolex. Wow. So there. Yeah. Amazing. I, yeah. That's a, he really wanted to roll it. Not, not, not like the, you know, $50 ones I bring back from China, a real one. Yeah. Well, this is what we're doing now is we're, we're subsidizing high risk loans in order to make things more fair somehow by penalizing those who, uh, who have good credit and incentivize those with poor credit. (laughs) <laughs> to do it. So I mean, what I, at, the, at the highest end, at the highest end, this is not going to change anything. Right. I think my concern Probably is not. Yeah. No, of course not. But I, I think what it does, however, what it does do is when you consider this is my credit score. Okay. 680. Okay. You know, if it's, um, if it's over 680 and over, you know, uh, 400,000 or something like that, then what you're doing is you're, you're, you're basically going to push up demand for the lower end. Right, because you get more people that are able to get these lower end homes and get them cheaper. So you're going to mm-hmm. push up demand right here. You're not going to do anything that's not going to affect the highest end that much, but you're going to take the lower end and push it more towards the middle. And so you're going to have more people competing over the, this these you know lower end and kind of average home. So it's going to hurt the the, the folks in the middle. When mm-hmm. I say in the middle, I'm talking to folks of a you know, median income that have a great credit score, people that have d- made the right decisions. Your average American making good decisions, working for their money. They're neither rich. They're not poor. They're just middle class looking to yeah. buy a normal American dream home. But that's but, but they're being penalized because of this while someone is pushing in and now competing for that home with a sub with a subsidy they got from the person that they're competing for the home with. And I'm just wondering, you know, if, if I got to pay an extra 1%, um, where does that money go? Is it going into some sort of pool to, you know, offset the risk of the, uh, the lower quality loan, you know, to make up the 1.75% on the one, you know, that's, that's not being says. paid. It says, it says used to subsidize high risk borrowers. I didn't get into the details of how it was, how they're so doing they're, it, but they're putting it. So, you know what? I, I mean, that's a tax. Absolutely. It's a tax. It's a, it's a, it's, um, it's, it's, yeah. it's designed to redistribute. It, it is designed it's to redistribute. Specifically designed to, yeah. So. And it will make a, it will create situations where you've got someone of a 700 credit score who's made all the right decisions, saved their money, wants to put 20% down on a $400,000 home. Yeah. And now they're competing with someone with a 500, 550 credit score um, who can bid on the same house and have more attractive terms. Yeah. Two, two point seven, you know, two and three quarters percent. Um, you know, that, that turns into some real money, like a couple hundred Here. bucks. Yeah. Very quickly. And and quickly. we really, we don't look at buying the $400,000 house. We look at the house that, that we can afford for, 50, right. you know, with, we look at uh, a $1,500 mortgage. Right. I, uh, when, when my father passed away and my sister lived with him until she was 50, um, I bought a condo in Memphis where she is for her to live in. Um, and, you know, when, when we were you know shopping around for it, 
that the way that I would show her what her payments were going to be was pulling out the old HP 12 C calculator and showing her how, you know, and putting all the numbers in and going here, your payment's going to be about five fifty, which is about what her payments are. Um, you know, if we did, if I did that with different interest rates, I'm sure, uh, you know, we, what I have to pay and what she has to pay would be two completely different things. Yeah. I might, and if they're going to, if they're going to impose this on current loans, um, she's going to be taking over that loan because I've got the good credit. She's got the bad credit. Yeah. Well, it it also is fishy to me during the the time where you always see in the headlines, how uh, Blackstone and others are buying up residential homes in large chunks and owning more and more residential America. It'd be interesting for us to think about that for a, for a future episode. Um, and, 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 you know, what we already subsidize housing through the FHA. So yeah, no, you know, we're, 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 we're doing this in multiple ways already and we're just continue to add, add to it. Um, you know, let's move on Russell. Um, I'm hoping you pick a topic I weren't all excited about. Can you see me like about to jump through the screen? You you pick the topic next. You jump you, you jump next. Olivia Picardo. Is that the yeah uh, the the brown yeah. player? Yeah. So um, I I just thought this was great. You know, it typically every once in a while you'll see a story about um, a, a female football player who is the kicker. You know that it, which you know that's that's understandable. Um, and kind of a safe spot to put somebody. But um, there's a young lady named Olivia Picardo. She's a freshman at Brown University, where you went. And uh, she made, uh, she, last Friday, she pit, she got to pitch hit in a Division One baseball game. She played baseball her whole life, hadn't played softball. And, um, you know, she was the first female to appear, first first woman to appear in a Div- Division One baseball game. And I, yeah, we... When you hear about the gender sports thing, it's a completely different topic. Uh, but it's kind of nice. And I think this one even flew under the radar a bit. But I think it's just wonderful that she's out there uh, giving it her very best in a sport that apparently she's played her whole life and w- was kind of thrilled to get out there. So, yeah, absolutely. Your school. I mean, I, I Any, think anybody can play sports at your school. I think it's very literally anyone. I, 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 <laughs> if I can. <laughs> so, um, no, I, I think it's great. You know, when, when if people are actually competing, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm with you on the. You know, there was the thing a couple of years ago with the, the gal at Vanderbilt, and you know, it's she does she's not doesn't practice with the team. She's kind of pull her out there last minute in a in a situation that's you know. Uh, I don't she was know. a kick. She was a kicker. She was she was a kicker, and, I, yeah. and it was. If you actually go look and see what she actually did, it, I don't know. I, that one didn't rub me the wrong way. It felt mm-hmm. like we were, it was a manufactured story. Um, yeah, you know, we've we've put her out here in a situation that barely matters, and the kick wasn't even good. It was terrible um, from what I saw, and we make a huge deal of it and have have her come in and speak to the guys at halftime, people that she's not played with she's not uh-huh. been a part of their training um she's not been out she was not at the 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 workouts during the summer she was not during the workouts during the winter she's not been traveling with the team she's not been working with the team and now it's come out here and put her out here for a stunt yeah and i don't that doesn't feel good to me 
Um, you know, I think it's I think it's disrespectful to the people that are actually on the team out there every day. And, you know, um, if she's earning her spot, uh, I got no problem with it. Uh, I yeah. think it's to yeah. me, it's all about merit. And if you um, if you deserve to be out there, great. And you know, I don't know anything about this girl, Olivia, but um, she can help Brown win baseball games. I'm all for it. She can, you can put her at the top of the roster and have her lead off um, as long as we're <laughs> As long as it, uh, as long as it's helping us win, but I don't, I don't know anything about that. About well, her, her they, it, but that, that's pretty cool. They, they put her in as a pitch hitter in the ninth when they were down ten to one. Okay, so I see, but I still, but I, I mean, I, I saw like video of her fielding, hitting, doing all. She's got skills. She knows what she's doing out there, uh, and it said that she had played on female baseball teams her whole life. So. She tried out for the team and made the team. Wonderful. Well, you know, there's a, there's a difference in, you know, being incredible and being someone who is deserving of being on a roster, you know, mm -hmm. being on the team itself um, is, is an accomplishment, you know, mm -hmm. but, it, but also the fact that it is a story tells you something as well. You know, if, if we're going to be just having people move from any team, however they feel, um, that they identify, then why have men and women sports? If if, oh, yeah. if they are truly the same, then we need to just delete all classifications and just say this is sports and yeah. anyone can play sports. There's just the lacrosse team, the baseball team, the softball team, men, women, anyone can get after it because everyone's the same. Yep. Maybe maybe we evolved to that point at some point, but we're not really there yet. I mean, we're not yeah. even close. I mean, I no. think it's a, I think it's way easier to feel comfortable with a girl um, trying out for a guy's team, you know, as long as she's playing by the same rules as the guys are. You know, there's things mm -hmm. like lacrosse where the rules for men and even the equipment for men is very different than it is for women. And, mm -hmm. you know, if you're playing by the same rules, fair enough. Yeah. But yeah. uh, what, it, what it ends up doing is it, it doesn't hurt men's sports that much. You know, no, what it does, right. it crushes women's sports. Yeah. As the father of daughters, I, uh, you know, I, I, and neither of my kids are um, um, yeah, you're going to be playing college sports. My, uh, that, that, that's for sure. Um, well, I but, if I, you know, if there was a situation, one of mine, one of my daughters played tennis and was pretty good. She got injured as a junior, so she didn't play her senior year. But she did go to like regional. She won regionals or something for doubles. But you know, if if she had lost in regionals in doubles to a, a mixed doubles team, I'd have been pretty bitter about that. Yeah, you know, if, if, if you know, I'd I'd have been pretty bitter about that. And uh, and she has pretty strong opinion on that one as well, um, which is really funny because it it kind of changed over time. Initially, she was like, "Oh, I think that's great," and then she. Um, there were some instances where, you know, uh, opportunities were taken away from women or championships were taken away from women by people that were not born female. And that really started to get under her skin. I, I just listened to her. I just, I don't, I don't point her in any direction whatsoever. Uh, but she, uh, I forgot who the swimmer from Kentucky is that, that, uh, had, that they had a lot of issues when she was speaking out in San Francisco. Uh, yeah. but, but my, my daughter went on kind of a, a um a monologue about that one and about how if a you know if she had been forced to play a boy in tennis you know so i was like okay 
you know, you keep, you're 18, you're going to keep developing your opinions and I'm going to let you develop your opinions the way you want. Yeah. So how, how about, we, you know, we mentioned before, um, at uh, the beginning of the episode about advice that we're, we're giving students. You know, I actually had a student that I spoke with yesterday. Um, and as you know, I'm, I'm in the entrepreneurship department. So we were talking about, um, life after his MBA and his next job. And, but it's also his entrepreneurial interests and, you know, things are changing in the world. Russell, what, what kind of, what kind of advice are you giving students right now? God, it's so funny. I, I, I was, I, I'm not going to be able to go to IU's graduation because it's mother's day and I, I, I like being married. So I'm going to hang out with my family for mother's day instead of going back down to Indiana. So. I went out with a few of the of the seniors that are graduating um played pool on Tuesday night and one girl just kept asking me over and over again you know, what what piece of advice can you give me what piece of advice can you give me and, which it was the end of a 15 hour day I I don't I'm not giving advice but the best thing that I could come up with is be selfish and worry about yourself um you know you're if you're going to be in the corporate world there's a good chance at some point you're going to be downsized um don't feel bad it, when you quit a place that would probably fire you if they had to, you know, just, yeah. and, and just really just the, the, the loyalty thing that it, there's a good balance in it. Um, don't be blindly loyal to companies. Trust me, companies are not blindly loyal to you. They, uh, I've, I've been at corporations where, you know, 10% of the people disappear one day. Um, so that, that was a major one was just, uh, really worry, do what is best for you. I even had a student that accepted, had already accepted one job and then they got a dream job offer and they weren't going to take the dream job. They said, you know, I'm committed to this other thing. And I was like, no, 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 this is exactly what you wanted to do. And you were settling on the other job. Go do exactly what you want to do. It was somebody that wanted to be involved in the markets. They got a job offer from an investment bank. They had already accepted a corporate finance job with a retailer. And I'm like, mm. that, that, that's not what you want to do, you know? And companies understand that people leave, you know, don't, it's, it's not like breaking up. You know, they're, they're, they, they get it. And especially this time of year, they make offers, they get acceptance. You know, some people accept, some people rescind their acceptances. Last year, there were companies that were taking back offers to college students or they had made an offer to start in May and they pushed them out to August or, or things like that. They're, so it goes both ways. So that that's that's kind of my, you know, and maybe that's my, you know, 30 plus years working and and you know, seeing all kinds of different situations where you know, I wish I hadn't been as nice as I had been in the past. Uh so maybe it maybe it's my old man bitterness that that'll hopefully rub a little bit off on them. But that that was probably the main one was um and then don't go instantly into graduate school. Uh get some work experience. Graduate school is a much better experience. It is better for you than uh, once you've got three to five years of work experience. It, it yeah, gives you I, a better I, I perspective. I agree. Uh, and I actually teach and uh, part of my students are early career MBAs. And, uh, you know, I, I think that there's, there is something to be said for an early career MBA. There's, you know, there's, it's not, not a, there's something to be said for it. 
I just find that students get a lot more out of it when they've got some work experience. Oh, absolutely. And absolutely. I also think that employers, um, many, not all, but I think in general, employers find it more valuable when um, you've got some experience and you're going to then get more education. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I, I, it, it's very apparent in the discussions you have in a classroom, you know, just any kind of experience, couple of years of experience makes a big difference in the ability to understand and contribute to discussions and that everything's not just completely theoretical, yeah. um, you know, and based on a, based on a, a reading, you know, yeah. and, and just their, their ability to, I mean, it can be, when you've only been in academia, you're so blind to the way that the world really works. You know, one of the things I had to discuss with my students is, uh, you know, for their final project, I had um, my friend, uh, Michael Stanley from the CIS group of companies come in and, uh, which is a middle market company, come in and speak to them, basically go over a live case study, something that they're working on right now. And one of the things I had to prep the students is, hey, this is way more like real life because this is real life. It's not a stale case that's been that, that's happened five years ago, 10 years ago. Here's all the readings. Here's all the financial service. Everything's perfect and in order. Mm-hmm. And you get and you have to and everything's already gathered for you. It is here is a mess of stuff and every company does it different. And some of it's very clean and it's not been worked out yet. You don't know the outcome. You know, there's all this other stuff that's happening and you, know, you see the alchemy of finance, um, not just the evaluation, uh, the, the value they were given, but you're actually thinking in terms of price versus terms and you know things like that, that in a case from the past, everything seems like it's so cut and dry. Mm-hmm. And when you actually get into the real world and you start hearing the actual narrative of here's what's going on and here's why this deal that we're talking about, we normally wouldn't go this far, but it makes sense because of this other reason. And it flies in the face of what you're learning in, in, in class, right? Mm-hmm. And those things you're, you're able to, to grasp and actually, I think, um, you know, relate to more of seeing just how different a CEO is from a professor. Oh yeah, um, you know, especially yeah. one that's lifelong in academia. Nothing against that. Uh, research is incredibly mm-hmm. important, but um, the practitioner view uh, is um, an attitude of actually speaking to a CEO and decision makers. It's it's going to be mm-hmm. very different. Um, oh yeah, and it can be very frustrating for students to get into the real world and see just how little many things are very, very, very different. But um, mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I, I think some of the advice that I'm giving is, especially when I talk to, to students that are interested in something to do with entrepreneurship, is, you know, I, I really focused on saving my money to get to the point where I was, I could be an entrepreneur. And mm-hmm. it's been over 10 years ago, I literally, um, you know, reduced my expenses as much as I possibly could. I rented out a room and a friend's um, upstairs. Uh, to reduce my reduce all my expenses as much as possible, sold my house and everything mm-hmm. um, because I wanted to go out on my own with zero dollars. And I knew I had to have a nest egg to live on for a while. And uh, and bless God, it worked out very well for me. Mm-hmm. Started from scratch and doing that based on savings. But, you know, what I what I told a student yesterday was I would focus a lot more mm-hmm. on building cash flow assets in addition to my career. So I would think of not just, hey, saving money, but how fast can I build up 
$5,000 of passive income, mm -hmm. you know, and that because with, in most places with $5,000 of passive income, you as a student, all of a sudden your life is very, very simple, right? Because yeah. now you want to stop, you, you want to, you, you get, you get that 5,000 month and you can quit your job anytime you want and yeah. go pursue your big idea. Because what a lot of them will say to me is, I really want to do, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. I want to start a business. I want to whatever, but I don't really have that idea that I've been passionate, that I've found yet. And say, you know, stop waiting on your passionate big idea and start and get into something. Just get into yeah. something. And when you get into something, then you'll be exposed to things and, 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 you'll, and you'll have the ability to create ideas <laughs> that you're not having right now while you're in school. I'm not saying that some people don't have it in school, but many people don't. Um, me, I, I didn't come from the finance world. So when I got in the finance world, then I start seeing opportunities for, for entrepreneurship. Um, but, but I'm telling kids, you know, just get started in something. And then instead of in the free time working on, you know, another designation or another degree or uh, another whatever, yeah. focus on finding cash flow and, Stop trying to find your passion all the time and get cash flow because cash flow will allow you to pursue whatever passion that you find. You're not going to be able to, you can't just start out at your passion. Most people can't. Yes. Yeah. There is a minority of folks that can just pursue their passion and make it, but I don't think that's very great. That's very good advice uh, right out of the gate. I say get cash mm -hmm. flow. Goal number one, 5,000 a month passive income, and maybe then you want to go for 10 and, and so on. But just getting there frees you up dramatically and makes it and, and to the point where you're not tied to your profession forever yeah. and you can't make a difference. You know, now you get a mortgage, now you get a car payment, now you get all these other things that keep adding up and you feel tied to what you're doing and you can't pursue an opportunity when it comes. Yeah. I think it's about creating freedom for yourself through other cash flow, um, just even a minimum amount, right? To, mm -hmm. uh, to, to, to poise yourself for the future. Yeah. So um, there was a, a serial entrepreneur that I worked with at SIBO uh, and his thing was he would try one business idea every year. He would try something mm -hmm. new every January and two or three of them over, over a 30 year period, two or three of them worked out okay. The rest of awesome. them kind of flopped. But I, I liked that as well. He would look for it. That, that was kind of his New Year's resolution was, uh, what's going to be my new thing this year? Yeah. And you know, always tried starting small businesses. A couple of them worked out quite well for him. And I'll guarantee neither of them were like some sort of passion that he ever had. It was just some good idea he had. Yeah. Well, there's, and that's the other thing too, is there's a lot of, a lot of boomers are starting to retire and uh, businesses that are, that are not sexy, uh, that are not, you know, um, social media worthy, yeah. you know, they're not flashy and there's businesses that folks can buy that are small businesses, they're cash flowing businesses that they can add some marketing to it or add and, and, and um, add something to, to boost it. But there's businesses that, you know, can be ran from home with a, a small portion of a young business school graduates um, time mm -hmm. and create a cash flow that allows them later to then do something that they're passionate about. I, I, I think that the idea that your first thing should be your passion is not, why not, why not learn on something that's easier yeah. and it gets you cash flow, you know, gets you, get you cash flowing. So, yeah, oh, I totally agree. All right. Well, I think we're getting close to the top of the hour. Um, Russell, yeah. great to 
to you today again. And a uh, reminder to everyone to, uh, to, this is episode four, like us, subscribe to us. And if you have a chance, please uh, consider giving us an honest review and, and sharing this with your friends. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. Thanks. Thanks.